Welcome to Fraudied Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients in their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and prices. So human trafficking is the fastest growing transnational crime, with more than 25 million people held in forced labor and sexual exploitation. As if these numbers aren't horrifying enough, 10 million of those trafficked people are children. And yet, rarely are U.S. organizations focused on human trafficking's impact on their operations, much less society as a whole. In fact, most of us consider human trafficking to be a problem occurring in developing countries and that there are more pressing issues that should demand our attention and compliance resources. That false narrative is part of what makes human trafficking so difficult to counter. So joining me today are several people who have been playing a significant role in changing the narrative around human trafficking by shining a light on the victims of human trafficking and by holding traffickers accountable. Martina Vandenberg, Alex Deer, and my co-host for this episode, Edith Long. Martina is founder and president of the Human Trafficking Legal Center. She established the Human Trafficking Legal Center in 2012 with a mission to end impunity for human trafficking and forced labor. She has spent two decades fighting human trafficking, forced labor, rape as a war crime, and violence against women. She's represented victims of human trafficking pro bono in immigration, criminal, and civil cases, and has testified before the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Human Rights and the Law, the Senate Finance Committee, the Helsinki Commission, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and the House Armed Services Committee on an array of human rights issues. Through the Human Trafficking Legal Center, she has trained more than 5,000 pro bono attorneys nationwide to handle human trafficking matters. She's received multiple awards for her leadership against human trafficking, including the Paula and Sheila Wellstone Award for her outstanding leadership and dedication in working to combat human trafficking and slavery in the United States. The Harry S. Truman Scholarship Foundation Stevens Award for outstanding service in the public interest law, Raphael Lemkin Human Rights Award in 2014, and the Catherine and George Alexander Law Prize. Martina, a former fellow of the Open Society Foundations, also served as co-chair of the International Bar Association's Human Trafficking Task Force. Alex Thier serves as chief executive officer of the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery, an organization that is committed to building partnerships and galvanizing global commitments to advance freedom and dignity for all by dismantling the systems that perpetuate modern slavery. He has dedicated nearly three decades to addressing the world's most intractable challenges and translating bold ideals into action at scale. Prior to joining GFEMS, Alex served as executive director of the Overseas Development Institute, a leading global think tank that examines causes and develops solutions for global challenges like migration, climate change, and fragility. In 2013, Alex was appointed by President Barack Obama as the Global Chief of Policy, Planning, and Learning at the U.S. Agency for International Development. In 2020, he served as co-director of the Bipartisan Task Force on U.S. Strategy to Support Democracy and Counter Authoritarianism. Edith Wong is a Managing Director in the FTI Consulting Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment is based in New York. With more than 17 years of experience as a forensic accountant, providing investigative and advisory expertise to external legal counsel, audit committee members, and boards of directors, Ms. Wong has extensive experience in disputes involving financial reporting issues, accounting regularities, and internal controls. 
Edith is also the recipient of the Advocate of the Year for her extraordinary commitment to advocacy and research to support the rights of trafficking survivors. Well, those are three very impressive resumes. Welcome, Martina, Alex, and Edith, and thank you for joining me today. Pleasure to be thank here. Thank you for having us. Hey, everyone. So, Martina, prior to establishing the Human Trafficking Legal Center, you were an attorney representing companies and individuals in corruption prosecutions under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, a statute that is near and dear to my heart. At first glance, human trafficking and corruption of government officials may seem distinct. Is there a link between the two? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked. So there are two points I want to make. Number one, corruption is the lubricant that makes all human trafficking possible. We have corrupt police officers, corrupt customs officials, corrupt border guards, corrupt labor ministry officials. The list goes on and on. And without corruption, trafficking cannot flourish. I would point you to two reports, one by the International Bar Association on human trafficking and public corruption, and one that was just released by UNDP, looking at the links between corruption and human trafficking. So that's the first point. The second relationship between bribery, corruption, and human trafficking is in the human trafficking movement, we are 20 years behind the anti-corruption movement. And if there's an allegation of bribery, it goes straight to the C-suite. Outside counsel is hired there is a sense that there is risk. Unfortunately, in a case of forced labor, in a case of human trafficking, it doesn't go to the C-suite. It goes to CSR. It goes someplace else in the company. And we need to come to a stage in the development of corporate governance where trafficking allegations, forced labor allegations are taken as seriously as bribery allegations. Human trafficking is an issue for all countries and communities. In so many of these cases, victims are lied to, they're assaulted, threatened, or manipulated into working under inhumane, illegal, or otherwise unacceptable conditions. It's a multi-billion dollar criminal industry that denies freedom to tens of millions of people around the world. Alex, other than a desire to be a socially responsible company, why do you think companies should think about the private sector's role in combating modern slavery and forced labor? Thanks, Edith. As shocking as those statistics are, I think it's really worth having listeners really take a minute to imagine what we're really talking about. We're talking about people, often migrants, people already vulnerable who are striving for their personal betterment, for their family. They wanna go, they wanna do honest labor and they wanna get paid for it. And what so often happens to those people is that they are tricked, they're hoodwinked, they're taken to jobs that they didn't expect to have, they're charged fees in the thousands of dollars and told that they have to pay them back to work five or six years before they can even get to zero. They're abused physically, sexually, so it's really important that we remember that people working in companies need to care for the obvious reasons, because this is a terrible abuse of people and their rights. But the other reason that companies really need to care is one word, risk. Companies face so much risk if they are engaging in forced labor. They face risk of prosecution. They face risk of having their goods and services banned from a variety of countries. They face risks to their reputations with a consumer base that is increasingly concerned about human rights issues. And increasingly, they're going to face loss of investment 
because investors are also looking at these factors and saying, whoa, we don't want to be part of that. Who can we invest in that isn't doing those things? But even more broadly, I think the private sector needs to be the locus of change because that's actually where the most decisions are made that are affecting people's individual lives. They're doing the hiring. They're operating the factories. They're selling the goods. They're examining their supply chains. There's so much that the private sector needs to do, not alone, but as a central mover to addressing this challenge. So that leads very nicely to our next question, which is, you know, the United States is one of the world's largest importing economies. The U.S. imports tens of billions of dollars worth of goods each year, produced as a result of forced labor. A few of the most imported goods include electronics, apparel, cocoa, seafood, timber, and cotton. How is this any different than conflict minerals? And is there an appetite on the part of the United Nations or OFAC to blacklist specific manufacturers or even commodities known to employ forced labor in large numbers? And is there any precedent for the use of UN or US sanctions watch lists related to forced labor? So Scott, I can jump in and take that one briefly, and then maybe I'll hand the baton back to Alex. One of the most promising new features of the risk that Alex mentioned is use of the Tariff Act of 1930. Section 307 of the Tariff Act, which was largely moribund until Congress amended the law in 2016, is now used to block goods made with forced labor from entering the U.S. market. And just to give you a sense of how robust U.S. government enforcement is now, in FY 2021, Customs and Border Protection detained 1,469 shipments of goods coming into the U.S. market worth more than $500 million. And so if companies are importing goods made with forced labor, they are opening themselves up to tremendous risk. First of a withhold release order, which is the mechanism, the order to Customs and Border Protection personnel to not let the goods in the country. But the second is if CBP determines that there is forced labor and issues of finding, those companies can be subject to fines. And so there's already been one fine based on a finding that stevia, an artificial sweetener, was made with forced labor in a prison camp in China. And the importer was forced to pay a fine of $575,000. Customs and Border Protection has indicated that they are planning to issue more fines in the future. And what's heartening to me as someone who's worked on fighting forced labor for decades is that other countries around the globe are looking to the U.S. Tariff Act as an example of what's possible. And other countries are considering adopting their own tariff acts in order to ban goods from entering their markets. We call this advocacy campaign the no safe harbor for forced labor made goods. And countries around the world are stopping goods from entering. The exciting thing about what Martina is talking about is that there is, I think, an earthquake coming, a legal earthquake coming, which could really change globally how forced labor is addressed and the risk of companies everywhere and countries everywhere from engaging in it. Martina and her colleagues have done amazing work, not only to get this change on the books so that the U.S. is actually banning goods, but to actually provide a mechanism to provide information so that they can enforce this law, right? Because you don't just need good laws, 
you need them to be enforced. And the critical thing that needs to happen is that that information needs to be there. So as other countries, for example, the EU, the world's largest market in 2021, first announced that they were going to be looking at mandatory human rights due diligence laws requiring companies to look at their supply chains and report on them. And in September, they announced that they were looking at an import ban law as well, which would mean any goods produced with forced labor, like in the United States, would not be able to come in. And this kind of flipping to these regimes that would actually require proactive work on behalf of some of the largest markets in the world will have a profound effect. And and it will prevent companies and governments from saying, oh, we can't sell there, so we're going to sell somewhere else. But in order for this to be effective, uh, we need to make sure that the information, the data that they can rely on where forced labor is happening is actually available. So Martina and I and a bunch of other groups petitioned the governments of the G7 this year to say, not only should you be doing this, not only should you be banning forced labor in your supply chains, but you need to share information with each other so that when the United States bans Malaysian medical gloves, as happened a few months ago, the UK, which relies on that same manufacturer, would say, oh, we're going to ban them too. And when all of these countries start to share information and collaborate, it will truly change the tide against forced labor. Speaking about this data on information sharing is a really good segue to our next question, which is the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, states that human trafficking is one of the most significant generators of criminal proceeds in the world and the fastest growing form of international crime. The U.S. financial system has been an instrument of law enforcement and the intelligence community dating back to when the Bank Secrecy Act, the BSA, was first signed into law in 1970. So banks and other financial services companies are obligated to have systems in place to identify, to investigate, and report when they suspect customers are laundering money, financing terrorism, or transacting with OFAC debarred persons or entities. Are what banks currently doing to combat money laundering sufficient to flag suspected human traffickers? Or are there additional things that they could be doing? So I'll jump in on that one. The FATF report is excellent, and I would recommend that everyone read it because it has concrete examples of how the financial system is used by traffickers. One very interesting, vibrant example is in Italy, there was a labor trafficking case involving agricultural workers, and the bank realized that someone was going to an ATM and pulling out all of the money using all of their ATM cards from all of the accounts all at once, which was a huge red flag. And so thankfully the bank recognized it and FATF wrote about it. The banks are doing some things that are good. So Cyrus Vance, the Manhattan DA, and the Thomson Reuters Foundation, and a group of non-government organizations, which we led, created a list of red flags. And the banks are now creating suspicious activity reports. And so there are SARS that are coming in and the SARS form has actually been amended. So now there's a checkbox for human trafficking. So you can check human trafficking. There are two things I'll say about this. One is the banks are submitting SARS. The danger at this point is that the banks are actually doing harm to trafficking victims. So this enthusiasm for intelligence and this enthusiasm for reporting 
needs to be balanced against the need to not debank trafficking survivors and not debank people who are actually engaged in legal activity. The second thing I'll say is that the SARS, as far as we can tell, and obviously this is very secretive and SARS are confidential, so no one is 100% sure, but it's our impression that the SARS are actually not being properly vetted and reviewed. And so I think that there are nuggets of potential intelligence on trafficking operations hidden in the SARS, but I don't think that they're being systematically reviewed at this juncture. Much of the illicit proceeds generated by human trafficking, human smuggling, and the criminal organizations that exploit the victims of trafficking as sex workers, drug, or money laundering rules transit the financial system. Finson has issued a recent advisory in a further effort to help employees and executives of financial institutions recognize the behavioral and transactional patterns and red flags that could assist them to detect when their institution is being used to launder the proceeds of human trafficking and fund their operations. What are some of the topologies and red flags that can assist banks to detect when their institution is being used by human trafficking ring? So it is, it's such a great question. And the FinCEN notice that came out in 2020 needs to be read in tandem with their prior notice from 2014. The new typologies that they've identified in the new FinCEN alert include front companies, so companies that are used to launder money, exploitative employment practices. We see all the time paychecks that are issued with deductions that are so excessive that people end up with essentially a zero paycheck and sometimes even a negative balance paycheck. They've also identified funnel accounts where all of the funds are essentially funneled in and then the money is moved sort of geographically across the United States. When we were working with Cy Vance's office in the beginning, when we first started developing the red flags for SARS, one of the typologies that we identified then was essentially massive withdrawals all at the same time. So all the workers going to one particular place and, and all doing their withdrawals at the same place. Extensive rentals of cars, for example, to move people across state borders. There are a lot of red flags, a lot of typologies that FinCEN has identified both in the prior report and in the current report. There's one example that we can point to where a SARS actually led to a conviction. The case is U.S. versus Botswanuk. And in that case, it's interesting because the Polish officials sent a request for assistance to the United States through a mutual legal assistance treaty because they saw massive transfers of money coming from Philadelphia to Poland with no reasonable basis. And it turned out that those were Ukrainian workers who had been trafficked from one village in Ukraine. They were all being held in forced labor, forced to clean big box stores in the middle of the night. And the money was being remitted via Western Union back to Poland, back to Ukraine. So it is possible to actually uncover these large scale human trafficking forced labor operations, but there has to be international cooperation. And the suspicious activity reports that are filed need to be pretty specific. So the United Nations has published a document called Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights to assist governments and businesses in implementing the UN's Protect, Respect, and Remedy framework. So aside from the obvious need for states to acknowledge and take ownership of their obligations to respect, protect, and fulfill human rights within their borders, the guiding principles encourage businesses to perform due diligence, increase transparency in their supply chains, and for states to enforce import bans, something we were talking about a little earlier. Those certainly sound like sensible steps. 
but what specific concrete steps should companies be taking to rid their supply chains of forced labor? Thanks, Scott. I would really suggest three things that companies need to focus on. The first is that they must know the whole chain. They cannot say our knowledge of our supply chain only goes so far. They have the capacity, they have the obligation, they have the technology to know the whole chain. And where there has been a need to develop technology, there's a lot going on these days. Our fund has been investing in supply chain tracing tools. Other has as well. The number of excuses is almost zero now. They got to know the whole chain. The second is that they have to focus on the default of ethical recruitment. They have to know where all of their workers are coming from, how they're getting to them, and how they are being treated. They have to know what their workers are experiencing, and they have to give them voice. They have to be willing to really know what is going on with their workers. They have to create the safe mechanisms for their workers to give them feedback without it risking their lives, their careers, their visas. They have to know where their workers are coming from, and they need to have a default that everyone working in this company is going to be treated fairly, is going to be paid fairly, no exceptions. The third is that they've got to make ethics their business. I think that there is a huge opportunity right now for first movers. For those who can come out today and credibly say, we are doing everything we need to do to make sure there is not forced labor in our supply chains, that we are clean of those problems and that we're doing everything we can to make sure of it is going to be a real benefit, both on the consumer side and on the investment side for those companies. Thanks, Alex. So in continuing to speak about supply chains and efforts to increase transparencies, to really to expose companies that are either knowingly using forced labor to produce goods or they're willfully blind to that. As a practical matter, the certain industries in the U.S., both licit and illicit, employ large numbers of undocumented workers, many of whom may be victims of trafficking. Can you provide some examples of what steps companies should take to make sure they're not employing individuals held in forced labor? So, Scott, it's such a great question. And the one thing I want to start with is all of my clients, every client held in forced labor I have ever represented came to the United States with a legal visa. They came to the United States with a contract and a legal visa, thinking that they would be living the American dream and actually be able to remit money home to their families. And so the problem is not just undocumented workers who are totally vulnerable. It's actually also workers with legal visas who face threats of deportation. Because the employers say, if you complain, if you don't do the work I demand of you, if you don't agree to a cut in wages, if you don't agree to the conditions of work or the conditions of housing, we'll just deport you. And that threat of deportation is significantly coercive, so significantly coercive that actually people will stay in those positions against their will because they're afraid of being barred from reentering the United States. So I agree completely with Alex in terms of knowing your supply chain and knowing your workers. The real risk, the real problematic feature of service supply chains as well, so workers here in the United States, is labor recruiters. So you may recruit someone to come over on an H-2A visa and work as an agricultural worker. 
but someone in the country of origin recruited that worker from his or her village. And that recruiter may have charged that worker $10,000, $20,000. We've seen cases with people walking across with a legal visa and a legal contract with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And so corporations need to make sure that the recruiters they are working with are ethical recruiters, are legit, because you may have people who are working for you who are actually servicing an illegal debt, who are being held in peonage. The answer to this is worker rights, looking at freedom of association, looking at unions, making sure that workers have peer-to-peer mechanisms to communicate making sure that there's worker-driven social responsibility, similar to what's being implemented by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. So corporations need to actually make space to talk to workers. So environmental, social, and governance compliance, ESG, it's fair to say until recently that concept was greeted with a collective yawn and it kind of gave way to and took a backseat to other more well-known and heavily enforced areas. But that really started to change when some of the major asset management companies began to examine the ESG programs of publicly traded investment targets when considering whether to invest. So ESG is perhaps the most talked about yet least understood area of compliance. And there's so much underneath it. So part of the confusion stems from just what exactly is beneath those three noble sounding words that make up that acronym. You know, it includes environmental impact and sustainability efforts, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social impact and corporate citizenship. It includes a wide range of activities, some of which are addressed by other compliance activities, such as sanctions, anti-bribery and corruption, but you know, some are often overlooked. So does the increased emphasis and understanding of ESG issues help or harm efforts to end modern slavery and deter human trafficking? Well, you know, Scott, we, we measure what we care about and we care about what we measure, right? And If we want to make progress on the issue of forced labor, we need to improve how investors and companies measure it. Historically, the S in ESG uh, has been the most neglected of the three. Social sustainability metrics have not kept pace with environmental and governance metrics. Partly, this is because environmental and governance issues have been much more topical, and partly it is due to greater difficulty in defining, standardizing, and accurately measuring the things in the S because the investment hasn't been made to do that. But it's not due to lack of risk of these issues. In fact, Moody's, the rating agency, says that the U.S. $8 trillion of debt, U.S. dollars, $8 trillion of debt is exposed to social risk, which is actually four times what they estimate at the moment is exposed to environmental risk. So it's a huge area. I think that all that we've been talking about in this discussion is leading to the fact that businesses are going to have to get a lot better at doing this. Investors are going to have to get a lot better at doing it. At the moment, There is incomparable and non-standardized data. So it's not helping us to have all the different rating agencies and so on reporting on different things, measuring different things. 
if you can't compare, then investors will lose their ability to make decisions based on that data if they're not comparable. And so I'm worried that at the moment, these remain more window dressing than they are effective decision-making tools for investors. We have been talking to a number of financial firms and the banking and investment industry about an effort that would drive this question of measuring the S, measuring forced labor deeper and making it more standardized. And I think that will unlock a lot more decision-making around these issues. Victims of trafficking are completely reliant on their captors to meet even the most basic needs of housing, food, and clothing. Sometimes disrupting these trafficking rings has the unintended consequences of victims having no way to meet those basic needs. The litigation that the Human Trafficking Legal Center pursues can result in cash compensation to victims, but litigation, as we know, can take months or sometimes even years. What can organizations do to help the victims of trafficking? So Edith, it's such a great question. And Scott, I'm going to propose a new title for this episode, which is Do Not Cut Bait. If you are working with a subcontractor and that subcontractor has forced labor and there's a withhold release order issued by Customs and Border Protection blocking those goods from coming to the United States, the worst outcome from our perspective as human rights advocates and as human beings, frankly, is for all of those workers to be thrown out on the street with absolutely no means of survival. So if all the orders shut down, the company shuts down, the the factory shuts down, and then the workers are abandoned. So I think it is incumbent upon U.S. companies, U.S. importers to work with factories on the ground to make sure that there is remediation, to make sure that the workers are treated appropriately. It's not their fault they were held in forced labor. That was someone else's decision. And so they should not be the recipients of harm when there is an enforcement action or risk. The other piece I'll say about this is we've been talking about risk and you mentioned litigation. So the Human Trafficking Legal Center is dedicated to strategic litigation and civil litigation under the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act. And under that act since 2003, since those lawsuits became possible, victims have recovered in orders and in public settlements more than $255 million in damages. That doesn't even begin to include the non-public settlements, of which there are many. And so companies need to start readjusting and thinking that actually there is liability, not just criminal liability, but also civil liability as they sort of assess their risk in terms of forced labor. Litigation isn't necessarily the first remedy that comes to mind in the fight against human trafficking. Martina, the Human Trafficking Legal Center supports lawsuits on behalf of some of the victims of trafficking. So why is civil litigation so important and how does it relate to criminal prosecution? Could you give some examples? Civil litigation is absolutely essential because the criminal justice system has failed. If you look at the data issued by the Department of State, In 2020, there were 9,876 prosecutions in the entire world, of which 1,115 of those prosecutions were for forced labor. The United States is no outlier. In the same year, 2020, there were 210 federal prosecutions for human trafficking in the entire country, and of those, only 15 were for labor trafficking and forced labor. And so trafficking victims who are subjected to forced labor are waiting for Godot. 
if they're waiting for a federal prosecutor or, or a prosecutor anywhere in the globe to bring their case. And so for many victims held in forced labor, their only opportunity to see a day in court is to bring a civil case on their own behalf. And this is why we've trained 5,000 pro bono attorneys. So like it has negatively impacted every aspect of our daily lives, COVID-19 has at least seemingly enabled human trafficking organizations to flourish by displacing more people, making them vulnerable, disrupting law enforcement efforts to thwart trafficking. Since many resources had to be reallocated to other priorities, more closely related to the direct impact of the virus. So is there a success story or two you can share that can serve to amplify the good work being performed by the Human Trafficking Legal Center and the Global Fund and Human Slavery? So I'll jump in very quickly and say that we were so relieved when the courts opened up again because we worked with Edith at FTI to develop briefing papers to argue that trafficking survivors should get significant restitution from a criminal defendant. So that extra time that we had allowed us the luxury of really doing a deep investigation of back lost wages and future lost wages. And as a result, I think the trafficking survivors, even though their case went forward during a pandemic, uh, the trafficking survivors are far better off because of the pro bono services that they received and because of the decision of the court. So that's a very sort of domestic case. On the international side, I do think that CBP Customs and Border Protection has used this moment to just ramp up enforcement. And I'm not sure whether that's COVID related, but what they showed is what I would call COVID courage, because in the middle of a pandemic, they still had the moral courage to bar the entry of surgical gloves and PPE. And it would have been easy to say, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we need these goods, and we're just going to let the forced labor slide. But they didn't. And those goods from Malaysia didn't come into the U.S. market. So I think that's a success story, even in the face of COVID. That's a great example, Martina. And I do want to just say, Scott, that, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat it. The pandemic has been absolutely devastating for the most vulnerable in the world. Our surveys show it. Many others show it. Uh, things are moving backward Extreme poverty is going up, hunger is going up. Many of these things that we've been making huge progress on in recent years are going backward. And we fear that the numbers of people who are suffering from trafficking and forced labor are going up as well. Despite that, we've had some opportunities to do some great things in this time. One of them, just hearkening back to what we were talking about before, we have been investing in an ethical recruitment firm in the Philippines. The Philippines is a huge exporter of labor, particularly women doing domestic work around the world, particularly in East Asia and in the Gulf, many of whom find themselves in conditions of forced labor and abuse. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to prove the case that there's actually a sustainable business model for ethical recruiting, that they can work with people who want to go overseas, that there are good jobs, that they can be treated fairly, they can be not charged abusive fees, and they can be paid for their work and have a good experience and be able to support their families and their communities back home. And this investment, although so far relatively small, has really been able to demonstrate that uh, just this last year, 2,500 women were placed successfully in jobs. Now, many of them wouldn't have been in conditions of forced labor necessarily, but even if, you know, 
10%, 20% of those were able to avoid forced labor. It's a phenomenal increase, a phenomenal effort to be able to secure decent, safe livelihoods for those people. And I, I think that there's huge additional potential for that. And then the other thing I'll throw on top is the global angle that we've talked about. You know, the G7 this year, the group of seven nations, biggest economies in the world, biggest democratic economies in the world, committed to the eradication of forced labor in their supply chains. It was a strong statement. It was followed up by their trade ministers. And so there is some global ambition that's starting to percolate, and we just got to find a way to take advantage of that and make sure that the real steps of accountability and follow through are now taken. Well, those are some really great and very encouraging examples, especially in, in the face of COVID having displaced so many people. So, you know, my experience working in law enforcement and, and across multiple industries is that most people, given sufficient information, will err on the side of doing the right thing. And it's an easy decision to do the right thing when eradicating modern slavery is the goal. So how can our listeners support the Human Trafficking Legal Center and GFEMS to learn more on how to mitigate this, the horrible consequences of human trafficking? So I'll start because usually when people talk about trafficking, they talk about the three Ps or the four Ps. They talk about prevention, protection, prosecution. I want to switch that and talk about H's. And the most important H for all of the people who are listening, that H is hiring because trafficking survivors need jobs. One of our board members, Evelyn Chumbo, who is just a visionary, Evelyn gave a speech in London years back and she said, you know, I'm tired of telling my story. I really don't want your sympathy. What I need is a job. And there was a law partner from Baker McKenzie in the audience and he hired her on the spot. We need more people to do that because trafficking survivors need gainful employment. It's a way of preventing them from going back into a situation of exploitation and harm. The other H's I would talk to you about are, are not things that would immediately come to the top of mind when talking about trafficking, but housing. I can't tell you how many of the people that we work with, much of the trafficking, much of the exploitation is driven by the fact that they have no place to live. Health. The number of survivors that we deal with who walk out of conditions of servitude where they've been held for 10 years, and what do they need? They need $10,000 in dental work. $10,000 in dental work because when you're in forced labor, no one gives you a salary, but they also don't give you a toothbrush and you certainly don't see a dentist. And so the healthcare piece is incredibly important. And then the last is hope. And I just want to point to one thing that Lichtenstein is doing. We had talked about the financial impact of trafficking in the past and earlier in this session, but Lichtenstein, the country of Lichtenstein is actually funding something called the Survivor Inclusion Initiative to make sure that trafficking survivors who've had their credit destroyed, who've had their tax filings fraudulently stolen by their traffickers in some cases, that these people can be rebanked, that they can come back into a financial system and restore their credit. So trafficking survivors need hope. But I hope if people leave this podcast today with one goal in mind, it's to hire trafficking survivors. And there are programs that are training them, like Annie Cannons in California, training trafficking survivors to code and work in IT. So Scott, you know, I would say, first of all, one of the things that listeners have to take away from this, whether it's the work that Martina and her 
center does, whether it's what the Global Fund and Modern Slavery and all of our partners do, is that this is not an intractable problem. We can actually make progress. One of the biggest challenges that we face, frankly, as a sector, as a movement, is that there's not enough investment. There's not enough policy commitment to actually making the changes that we have been talking to today. So I'll give your listeners three ideas. The first is, as you say, get informed. We just redid our website. It's www.gfems.org. I know that Martina has one too. People can come on there and they can see what's going on. We've got some great materials there. We just this week put out an impact report. People have to understand not just how terrible this problem is, but actually what can really meaningfully be done to change it. Because there is a lot of good work that is being done and there's a lot more to be done. The second is, what can people do? Well, money is absolutely and fundamentally necessary if we're going to make progress on these issues. Martina just outlined some of the things that are needed. I'm sure Martina's organization takes donations. We take donations. There are many other great organizations out there that take donations. And, you know, I mean, literally every dollar does count because we're serving some of the neediest people in the world, people who are the most vulnerable, and there's a lot to be done. It's not just up to governments and corporations, individuals have to help, but they can also engage in advocacy. We get a lot of our funding from governments. Ultimately, it is going to be a big process of change that makes governments follow through on their accountabilities, that makes the private sector follow through. People need to tell their governments, they need to tell the companies that they buy from that they care about these things, that they are watching, and that they demand change. There's all kinds of good ways to do that by reaching out to members of Congress, by making decisions about how you buy, by voting, by liking things online that you think support these things. There's a lot to be done, and, and I, I encourage everybody to get involved because it's a tough business that we are in. But it is incredibly important and it's incredibly gratifying to know that there actually are real ways to make a difference. And let me just jump in and emphasize exactly what Alex just said. For all of the people who are listening who work on Foreign Corrupt Practices Act cases, we all remember when bribery was not just ubiquitous, but in Germany, it was tax deductible, right? So compare tax deductible bribes in Germany to the Siemens case. That kind of remarkable change is possible, not just in our lifetimes, but I think in, in the next decade. And all of the work that's being done now by governments, by GFEMs, by non-governmental organizations, it's such important work. And we can get to the place where we are in anti-corruption work. We just have to work harder at it. Well, this has been a terrific conversation, I think, certainly eye-opening for me and, and hopefully for many of our listeners. I really like the H's and just kind of helping our listeners and, and anybody that has an interest in this subject to see the, the less obvious impacts that human trafficking has on people, even when they are no longer subject to it, the, the long-term effects and the needs that they have that aren't currently being met or they need help meeting them. So th this has been really, really a wonderful conversation. So that's all the time we have for today. And thank you guys so much. This is such important work that each of you are doing in, in this 
I share your optimism, Martina, that this is not an unsolvable problem. And I do think that global organizations are the key. The private sector is the key because they have the economic might to make real change and they just need the will to really make that a reality. So thanks so much, each of you guys, for being on, on this episode. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. So that was the Human Trafficking Legal Center's Martina Vandenberg and Global Fund to End Modern Slavery's Alex Thier and my co-host for this episode, FTI's own Edith Wong. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case topic or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.